and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we present our June graphic novel of the month, Chase. Chase was a comic book series published by DC Comics. It was written by Dan Curtis Johnson, illustrated by J.H. Williams III, and inked by Mick Gray. It lasted 10 issues, including a special number 1000 issue. The character of Cameron Chase first appeared in Batman, issue number 550, from January of 1998, and was written by Doug Mensch and drawn by Kelly Jones. The Batman appearance was used to promote this upcoming series of Chase. Now, the original Chase series was reprinted in a graphic novel form, all 352 pages, in December of 2011, and that is what we read. And here to review Chase with me is a big fan of that series and the person I need to thank for recommending this graphic novel, JJ. JJ, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad that we got a chance to take a look at this, that you were open as a suggestion. This is one of those gems that I wish it had gone on longer, but hey, at least we got 10 issues out of it, which yeah. makes for a great graphic novel. A, a fantastic graphic novel format. And frankly, I think it's a crime that this series didn't have a greater life than it mm -hmm. did because it, it is so original. A fantastic take. And of course, we'll delve into those specifics here very shortly. But, Gigi, what I'd like to do is open up with a little Kirby Kernel, a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake, Jack. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Kernel. Now, in our Kirby Kernel, we like drawing comparisons or a common thread of a particular work, a particular author or illustrator. And in this Kirby Kernel, we're gonna focus in on crime comics. So as we're talking about a detective here, an agent here in Cameron Chase. Now, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon created hard-boiled stories about crimes throughout the ages for Crestwood's Prize Comics imprint in 1946. And after a first story in Treasure Comics, they filled the pages of Headline Comics, Justice Traps the Guilty, and Charlie Chan throughout the rest of the decade, introducing characters like Red Hot Blaze and, of course, Charlie Chan. By 1947, 1948, they were doing crime stories for Hillman's Real Clue crime comics as well. So... This is indeed a genre, even though it is superhero adjacent here, that Kirby was intimately familiar with, and one that I think he would have been quite uh, proud to have said, wow, th this is a pretty creative way to have blended the superhero genre with the crime or detective genre. Absolutely there. And you, you called it, uh, very ap aptly described as superhero adjacent. I mean, it's soundly grounded in the 
the DC universe uh, in the world of superheroes. And our main character here, Cameron Chase, is interacting with these superheroes on a regular basis. So um, definitely, uh, definitely something where um, it's kind of the you know, the best of both worlds. We've got some crime and action and investigative, uh, focusing on the investigative side of things. And we've got the superheroes as well. Now there is a little bit of a, uh, an overlap here and I'm trying to see, uh, which issue it was. I think it's in the fifth issue, uh, or the fifth chapter in the, uh, in the trade where uh, there's a flashback story um, where Chase is talking about her encounter with this, um, with this cultist, this, you know, this cult organization that seems to form a lot of her background. And um, I believe the character in there is meant to be, isn't it Clarion, the, the witch boy? Yeah, indeed. So that is that is one heck of a callback there, right? And even in that, he's um, he's like thinking that uh, Etrigan is the one behind everything. So we've got another call out to another great Kirby character. So um, fun stuff here, and uh, definitely. Uh, the creators of this uh, this comic, you know, know their history, know their uh, their lineages of heroes and villains enough to, you know, do this little uh, homage or uh, issue dedicated to one of the characters from Kirby's uh, from Kirby's retinue. Yeah, and JJ, that is a great pull here from that fifth chapter in in this graphic novel, and and one where I. I smiled when I first saw that and I was debating back and forth what what to throw into this Kirby Colonel went the crime uh, route here because we have done and and covered Etrigan the Demon Mm -hmm. and have have mentioned him before but it is great to see this direct Kirby connection within this series and the invoking of that particular character and uh, again the nice thing about the history about dc is that you can always pull on those strings and that heritage there and someone who was really good at doing that was neil gaiman also so that's actually a big tip of the hat here to the comics knowledge of one writer mr dan curtis johnson and with that jj let's head over to a little creative chatter about our writer dan curtis johnson and our illustrator jh williams the third Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. All right. Our writer, Dan Curtis Johnson, is an American programmer and comic book writer. And yes, we're talking computer programmer. Known primarily for his creation with J.H. Williams III of the DC Comics series Chase numerous secret file stories and for having converted the character of Mr. Bones from a former low-level supervillain to a high-level bureaucrat of the Department of Extreme of, of Department of Extra Normal Operations which was also created by Johnson. Gail Simone the the famous comic book writer Gail Simone has described him as belonging in her personal 
Hall of Fame. She thinks that highly of Dan Curtis Johnson. And, you know, for a very limited career, JJ, I have to say, Dan Curtis Johnson left one heck of a mark. I think that the the work that Dan did on the Secret Files stories really shows his understanding uh, and depth of knowledge regarding the history. And I think that's what he was tapping into with this series, you know, kind of playing in the the corners of the DC universe that didn't necessarily um, see a lot of light. So it was definitely fun to um, experience this series through his writing, through uh, J.H. Williams' drawings. Yes, and J.J., as we look at J.H. Williams' drawings, why don't you give us a little bit on his background? Absolutely. So Jim H. Williams III began his comic book career in the mid-1990s, penciling Death Wish for Milestone Media. He then did DC's short-lived Chase title, uh, which he did with D. Curtis Johnson. He formed a team with inker Mick Gray, working together on the Elseworlds graphic novels, Justice Riders, and Son of Superman. Williams then had a run on Wildstorm's Promethea with Alan Moore from 1999 to 2005, and he teamed up with Warren Ellis to launch Desolation Jones at Wildstorm in 2005 and participated in Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers Project. He has additionally done art on Batman and Jonah Hex before becoming a regular artist on Detective Comics with writer Greg Rucka in 2009. Now I know that you and I talked at length about his artwork on Promethea. Oh. Didn't you cover Justice Riders or was that, uh, or am I thinking Jonah Hex? Jonah Hex. Ah, Jonah that Hex. was the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he is uh, amazing. And what is fascinating about this, JJ, is that so many of these comic book writer luminaries decided to pony up here and, and hitch their wagon to J.H. Williams's illustration stylings. And, I mean, my gosh, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison... Uh, it's it's uh, Greg Rucka. I mean, mm-hmm. this is mind boggling. Uh, Warren Ellis. I I, I mean, I, I think that tells you enough about Jim as a creative force. The fact that he would attract collaborators of that caliber. Absolutely, absolutely. I I and we'll probably get into this more in depth when we start talking about the art of this particular series but it's it's when one artist gets paired with that many luminaries in the field you know that they're doing something special indeed indeed well jj that being said i know you are always keen to send us on a bit of an expedition into some comics archaeology I said that, good man. 
Absolutely. Now, this time around, I thought there's two things of, I think, importance when we look at this particular series. Um, one is kind of the subject matter and what's happening here, primarily that of, you know, covert government agencies. And the other one is looking at the timeline of when these uh, when this story took place, which was uh, towards the end of the 1990s, 1998 to be exact, um, the entire series uh, fit within the calendar year of 1998, including the first appearance of the character in Batman 550. So I, I went digging and I started looking at, there's, there's actually a common theme here among these uh, a number of these secret covert government agencies. And uh, let's see if you can follow along here. So the first one I wanted to touch upon was Task Force X, the Suicide Squad. Now this Task Force X was, um, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a title, it's a group that has a long legacy in DC Comics, uh, having been uh, a previously a non-superhero group. Uh, they were, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, rejects and prisoners that were pulled together to, um, you know, kind of like the Dirty Dozen. You know, they were pulled together to do, uh, you know, operations that the you know, government didn't want to get its hands dirty on. Well, Task Force X has become... Uh, a very popular group, uh, given the different personalities that ended up showing up in there. And this was a group that was formed by Amanda Waller. Uh, now, Amanda also formed a independent arm of Task Force X, and this was known as Checkmate. Now, Checkmate, um, if you want to think of them, they're kind of a shield-like organization where they're they're non-powered operatives, and they you know they do these uh, clandestine operations and investigations. Finally. Uh, as you pointed out, Mr. Bones, uh, who uh, has risen to prominence as a result of this series and, and Dan's work on him, is the director of the DEO and reports to the U.S. Secretary of Metahuman Affairs in the DC Universe, which originally was Amanda Waller. Do you see where I'm going here? <laughs> Oh yeah, all roads lead back to Waller, and it's, <laughs> and it's interesting and, and not surprising at the same time that the DC Extended Universe or the DCU also, or now whatever James Gunn is going to call his iteration, I can't help but think that all roads will also lead back to Amanda Waller. She is such a central figure in bridging the worlds of superheroes, metahumans, and villains actually here, particularly mm -hmm. as it relates to 
her suicides her suicide squad absolutely here and the character of amanda waller was originally created by john ostrander len ween and john byrne and first appeared in legends number one so this is 1986 so this is i think a year after crisis on infinite earths and this was one of the first crossovers or you know the big uh events where it touches every book um in 86 so the first one after crisis on infinite earths now what i think is interesting is her character is one that has not only appeared in a, a, any number of dc related comics but also dc related television she's made an appearance in the arrowverse uh in film she has been in um She's been a character in several of the films, obviously, in the case of um, Task Force X or uh, Suicide Squad. Uh, and then finally, in video games, she's made an appearance in the video games as well. So for a character that, when it comes to historical point of view, has only been around since the mid-80s, this character has incredible staying power and i think it's because she's one of those protagonists you love to hate and one of the biggest things she has is this animosity or this you know butting heads relationship with the batman and i think we'll see that come to bear here in our story we'll get to the story uh, in just a minute. Uh, did you have any more thoughts on Amanda Waller before I jump into my next point? No, I'll, ju I'll just say for the uninitiated here, who maybe haven't taken a deep dive into the DC universe, but maybe are more familiar with, let's say, Marvel Fair, and maybe even at that, not the comics, but Marvel films, I kind of equate Amanda Waller's significance here over on the DC side of the house to what, in the more modern era, the Samuel L. Jackson portrayal of one Nick Fury was to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a central figure, uh, a normal human being, if you will, but wielding quite a bit of influence and, and power. But as where I would say Nick was a little more uh, aimed towards uh, the better side of things, and you're actually rooting for Nick Fury, I would say that Amanda Waller is a little more Machiavellian. Mm -hmm. And although working for the government, it's by Amanda's way. And she's willing to bend a lot of the rules in order for her to end up on top. I mean, she's truly fighting a bureaucratic battle and is constantly trying to not only maintain her power base, but expand her power base throughout the DC universe. So from that standpoint, JJC is a rich character and indeed mm -hmm. one we all love to loathe. Yes, very, very ambitious. And and the phrase that always comes to mind is by hook or by crook. There's She's going to get her way no matter what. Um, you have to get up pretty early in the morning to pull one over on Amanda Waller. All right. So my second thing was kind of looking at the DEO amidst the time that it was written, right? So the late 90s. And 
my the first question that popped into my mind was why do we need the DEO? Because there's all these other organizations, you know. Um, this one was does did DEO work very closely um, with superpowered individuals? Well, let's take a look at some of the key crossover events and key milestones in the 90s. So let's kick things off with Eclipso, The Darkness Within, in 1992. Now that Eclipso had thousands of these black diamonds, he could control many of the heroes at one time. So when you can't trust your superheroes who are you going to turn to you know here we're starting to see this is this is pretty endemic of of the the darkness that is in the 90s um that was followed very closely by the death of superman the reign of superman and the re re superman excuse me and the return of superman so this all took place between december of 92 and october of 93 so here you have a case where our greatest hero in the dc universe you know fell and fell while battling doomsday others you know rushed to fill his vacancy you know some with noble purposes some far less noble and then finally the you know the resurrection and return of superman uh then in 93 we have bloodlines and this was another one of those super crossover events that touch virtually every title in this one six aliens began feeding on human spinal fluid which occasionally led their their victims to develop superpowers and this resulted in 27 new dc superheroes now the sad thing is most of those never went on to become terribly exciting heroes um but just the same now you've got this sudden influx of super beings close on the heels of bloodlines you have batman nightfall and nightfall is actually the larger story arc that took place in batman which is uh nightfall uh where bane breaks batman's back so like superman we have another of our triumvirate falling here um and it was nightfall at night quest where uh bruce wayne tried to find a person to take batman's place and didn't necessarily um didn't necessarily pick the best person there were some issues there uh and then finally the third one which for some reason now i'm blanking uh, the name of um where we come to a resolution where you know Bruce Wayne Batman comes out of this essentially transformed and becomes a better Batman uh, for the time that uh, he was incapacitated. Yeah, JJ, and uh, just to relate, I mean, th that is such an iconic illustration, the, the uh, Bane breaking Batman's back. And really, as we're establishing here, this trend of DC to place their two-thirds of, of their uh, trinity here in dire peril 
we're killing off Superman. We're breaking Batman's back. Okay, what is going on here? So, indeed, some some dark and perilous times ahead within the DC universe. And actually, it only gets darker. Yeah, it doesn't end there. Because right after that, we have the Emerald Knight in 1994, where Hal Jordan becomes Parallax. Now, there was probably no, no darker moment. Uh, now, in both instances of uh, Superman's demise and... Uh, Batman's incapacitation, they both were able to return to their former to their former glory, shall we say. But here in the case of Hal Jordan, he is just consumed with the bitterness of not being able to save Coast City and lashing out at not only the um the Green Lantern Corps, but the Guardians of OA as well. And, you know, then finally becoming or being consumed by uh, the Parallax entity. So that was 94. And in 96, we have Final Night, where the Sun Eater is bringing about the end of the world as we know it. Now, the one nice thing about this is, you know, if you haven't figured it out, they do resolve the situation. But Hal Jordan is re is redeemed in this one. Hal Jordan is able to be redeemed. I think there was just such backlash at the um, the turn that the, his character took um, that it was definitely something to to bring back, you know, to to lighten everybody's heart in that respect. Yeah, and JJ, if I'm not mistaken, right around this time, did we then have the emergence of Kingdom Come? So we started to see an upswing, even though that was an Elseworlds title, a, a, an upswing here by fandom saying, yeah, you know what? You, we, we've gotten pretty dark here. We, we, we'd we like a little more light back on the subject. We kind of like our superheroes. And if there's any way in which Hal could maybe come back in a, in a better capacity, could you maybe work on that? And, you know, as DC tends to do, no one's ever fully dead. Uh, no one's uh, fully given up on as far as their, their conversion is concerned. There, there's always a creative way back and Absolutely. to appease the readership. And indeed, DC did come through with that. But they were on one heck of a run here as far as their titles garnering sales i mean the death of superman was massive when you look at bane breaking batman's back that sold extremely well so these events though dc has been accused of event fatigue particularly as it relates to okay what's the crisis du jour for mm -hmm. this year mm -hmm. uh they they at least here found a way back. And I was happy to see that. And that's even coming from me who I'm not the biggest Hal Jordan fan. I'm more of a John Stewart fan as mm -hmm. it relates to my green lantern. Uh, but I have to say this was, this was artfully done, but as you said, going through all the grittiness of all these different series here, uh, this is really teeing up chase very well. Yep. 
Absolutely. And you're absolutely right on Kingdom Come was 1996. So the same year of uh, Final Night and the redemption of Hal Jordan. Uh, going back to my earlier comment, the third part of the uh, the Nightfall trilogy was Night's End, and that was the uh, kind of the resolution to the Nightfall arc. So um, I've only got one more item on my list. And even then, you notice I haven't gone year by year. There was a whole bunch here that were like right back to back. But there were other events going on these years, uh, you know, these mega events. But I just tried to focus on the ones that really had such a dark downward trend. Uh, the last one actually takes place after Chase, uh, which is Batman No Man's Land, which after the cataclysmic uh, earthquake which nearly destroys gotham uh it's a year-long crossover event that took place across all the batman titles so here you've got this dc universe that to me just feels dark and heavy and it's kind of the who's watching the watchman situation so it seemed like in 98 was the perfect time to bring in the deo as an organization who works with and in a sense, kind of investigates the goings on of superpowers in their world, in their uh, United States. Yeah, it, this is, it, I, JJ, you did an amazing job here, really taking the top of the waves events, because as you said before, there were so many different crossovers and more more complex uh, breakdown of storylines and a, a lot of intertwining of series that happened here. But I think we're giving everyone a very good impression that, okay, look, these were very dark times. There were some redemption stories that took place here amongst those dark times. But nonetheless, you bring up the greatest point here, that being your callback to the watchman now, who's watching the watchman well in this case you have one cameron chase coming to the scene and i think the interaction now of a normal human agent with extraordinary abilities mind you i mean she she she's a force to be reckoned with here ends up creating a new dynamic for the superhero comics, these traditional superhero comics, to have to address, and in a great way. So where you started to see the Valiant comics in the 90s and this trend towards street dark grittiness happen, DC said, okay, not, not, not only can we go there, but at the same time, we can present you with a very compelling female protagonist who can hold her own and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these metahumans and superheroes. So from that standpoint, JJ, thank you for bringing up all of these events because I, I think this so beautifully provides that rich context from which Chase would be birthed. Always a pleasure. And with that, kids, let's head over to our literary aisle to discuss our story and the illustrations of Chase. Arr, 
and ho! There's our literary aisle. All right, JJ, now that we're on our literary aisle, I just kind of like to tee up a discussion here about the chase story. And I think there's no better way to do that than to discuss where we initially opened up in this book. And the first story is so aptly titled baptized in fire Mm -hmm. and Cameron chase. She is in the process of relocating from California to New York city. And she begins her first day as an agent for the department of Extra normal operations. And she f- meets field commander Sandy Barrett, who immediately assigns her to a case in Daly, Ohio. So she doesn't even get an opportunity to kind of get comfortable there at, in the office in New York. No, no, no. She walks in first day, and guess what? You're heading out to the field. <laughs> I was like, okay. This is this is good. So this does not in any way, shape, or form drag at all. I mean, you you are immediately immersed into the story. And what I found JJ from a a mood perspective is this immediately felt like X Files to me. I had mm-hmm. the theme of the X Files going in my head as I'm watching Cameron Chase, you know, gallivant across the country going to. The, the latest hotspot uh, of what she needed to deal with as it related to metahumans and do her thing. And from that standpoint, this is definitely a product of its times story-wise. And again, very grounded and rooted in real life. And when we're talking about Cameron relocating, she has a boyfriend well, that impacts the boyfriend. I think he's a computer programmer, so there you go. That's not far-fetched from a one writer here, his background in uh, Dan Curtis Johnson, mm-hmm. and them having to uh, navigate their own relationship, their personal life, and then the impact of the professional life having on that relationship. It makes this very real. These, this is a side of characters in superhero comics that you normally don't see. And I, this is really refreshing because it truly is a mashup between a detective comic, a thriller, and a superhero comic. And this is not an easy thing to do to blend these genres together and come out with a very compelling story. And I think that this team indeed did this over on the story side of the house. And that's just my general impressions there. JJ, what, what are some of your general impressions of this series as it relates to the, the story and story arcs? Well, I think you really, uh, you really found a great touchstone in the X-Files feel. And there's, there's several things in this that parallel to the X-Files. So first off, the number of unknowns, right? There's there's the feeling that there's some sort of um, conspiracy going on in the sense that in Cameron's case, she has some unresolved issues in her past that only slowly 
get teased out as you go through the stories through flashbacks and discussions with other people in her life so you have this this slow burn if you will of revealing information and creating and ref, uh, filling in the backstory of her character um, the other side of this is the the mysterious person behind everything at the organization um, there are several appearances where you hear the voice of the director and you know you make reference to the director and you see a silhouette of the director before you actually meet the director and then it's revealed that the director is none other than mr bones um who was a small-time villain at one point and now he's put in charge of this organization I mean, here's a guy whose very touch is, you know, he has like a cyanide touch, which can kill you. I mean, imagine having him for a boss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not not exactly the, uh, the, the the cuddly type there, that's for sure. No, and, no, and, and not one at who all. You, you, you really, really want to keep a nice, healthy distance from. And, and honestly, it's a huge juxtaposition because you've got again, this exceptional human being without any metahuman powers that you can readily see, right? who is thriving in a world that is just riddled with this metahuman challenges. And on top of all of this, she's working for an extra normal boss who's setting up this Department of Extra Normal Operations. Yep. Wow. Well, and it, that's another mystery. Is like, is she powered or not? Right. There's there's a question there. There's there's an unknown there. And again, right. That's what Dan's doing. He's he's teasing out the background. And what he does is he always teases it out around these. Uh, these really big set pieces. So in the first one, it's about this, you know, essentially this person who can set fires, uh, escaping custody and, you know, wreck, wrecking havoc. And, um, you know, how is she supposed to deal with this? Uh, she actually feels and seems overwhelmed at times with this. Um, I mean, the very next issue, she's you know, having to command the suicide squad on a operation. And of course, the one thing that they're trying to do is get away, right? They want to escape their bonds. And it's, it, she's put in very tough situations. And she manages to come through it pretty well um, in all cases. So there's a tenacity to her character and like you said a groundedness um which you get a lot of that through the a little bit of the slice of life uh stories where you're meeting her her friends her family uh people that have worked with her and then learning more about her background and why she's prejudiced against superheroes um so I think it's it's a very intriguing read, and I'll tell you why I think it 
I tell you why I, I think it failed in the long run. If you look at the first cover, and anybody who doesn't have the book can do a, a search for, you know, Chase DC number one cover. She's posing in front of this wall of monitors, and on all of the monitors are different heroes and villains of the DC universe. And in some cases, you're seeing... Um, I think it's Wally West as the Flash at this time. If if I'm remembering my my uh, history books, yes. uh, he's he's pulling his his uh, cowl off. And I think Wally West was one of the superheroes who did not have a secret identity at that point in time. But you've got pictured here um, Deadshot, and you've got the Clock King and the Huntress, and you know, Martian Manhunter and Catwoman and Green Lantern. So the tagline at the top of the comic is she tracks the world's most dangerous prey, giving you the impression that she's hunting or chasing superheroes. And I think what actually ends up happening is she ends up working with them in a lot of cases, uh, you know, babysitting them in some cases, and then dealing with other um, other instances where she's involved in in um, international uh, international endeavors. So it's I think it was kind of a bait and switch. I think they were really kind of selling one thing and giving you something else. Now that something else I think is still a really interesting story, very interesting characters. I love the artwork. I love the pacing. Um, I would have loved to have seen where they would have taken it, but um, that sadly was not to be. And yeah, JJ, I think you bring up the, the most salient point about this series in the portrayal there of that first cover and the expectations for the readers, that's a an interesting grab by DC, intentional or not, to try to draw you in immediately. Mm-hmm. But I think the power in this whole series was a theme that was even greater and, and and one where you as a reader have a lot of empathy, actually, for metahumans that are adolescents who are just discovering their powers. Mm-hmm. And Cameron being sent in to try to mediate situations when that new metahuman who just realized they have powers can't control them. That's an amazing mm-hmm. uh, spot in someone's life who would have that issue that they're trying to tackle. And that is just so rich with natural tension, great storylines. I mean, it's there's endless possibilities here. Of the situations that you could put one Cameron Chase in, and then adding on top of that, the huge mystery of why in the world does this dedicated agent who wants to see metahumans controlled 
and to bring some sense of order to the world so consumed with loathing them mm-hmm. what happened in her life to change her or not or, or to develop her into this type of a person who is so massively biased against anyone with powers now what's interesting in the book is her interactions with one Bruce Wayne and Batman. Exactly. Because there you have what's Bruce Wayne's greatest superpower? He's rich. But putting that aside, he is the world's greatest detective. Mm-hmm. He's in a similar line of work as Cameron Chase. And what's beautiful about how Cameron Chase was written here by Dan is that she goes toe to toe and can hold her own with one Batman. So, you know, that's not here on this page on this, on this front cover, but man, once you get into the stories, there is more than enough to hook a reader in for a longer term journey when you're bringing this amount of complexity, angst, in some instances, uh, um, a, a, a natural um, conflict here, tension. It, it's got it all from that standpoint. It, it really does. So, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you, JJ, in, in the long run. Uh, there was some miscommunication on DC's part as far as far as how to properly market this book. But boy, if you gave this thing a shot and you read it back in the day, I can't help but think that you'd still be a fan today. Absolutely. And indeed you are. And that's why I you read this. Exactly. Which is, which is awesome. I mean, well, this is just such a hidden gem. There's, there's one thing I want to follow up on before we dive into the art. And that is there's, there's two issues, uh, issue seven and eight where she is dealing with Batman. Right. And so she's sent to Gotham to follow up on the appearance of these uh, sort of indestructible demons. Like they're just popping up and, you know, are they, you know, magical? Are they, you know, mutants? What are they? Um, And, but then she's given this secondary task of while she's there, she's really supposed to be finding out who the batman is right Right. so here's here's where you get that head-to-head and it's such a wonderful game of cat and mouse you know what does batman know what does chase know how do they try to one-up each other and it's just it's masterfully done it's just so masterfully done those two chapters you know or issues within the 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 graphic novels is just those are the high point and i think that could have been what this series was um i think it just took a little while getting there and by that point you know it's probably a case of you know the sales numbers you know had had spoken and you know editorial choices were made and you know after the one million issue uh so you could say she lasted a 
a million <laughs> issues. But we know that she just lasted 10 issues uh, as, as her own title. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, you know, equally as gifted in the delivery of this story is J.H. Williams's art. And, J.J., what were your impressions on how the art serviced the story and how compelling did you find the visual storytelling here in Chase? Oh my gosh, this was so good. This was so good. First off, you've generally got, you know, edge to edge, top to bottom art. Um, there, everything goes to the far edges. And, and I'm thinking specifically now of those two issues with the Batman. There are these wonderful graphical elements that surround the page and help um, kind of give it kind of a Baroque or Art Deco feel, right? Where there's this kind of extra gilding. Um, there's one page in particular where there's a different icon in each of the corners of the page. And in two of them, you've got a bat silhouette. And in two of them, you've got a gun silhouette. So that's basically showing you your um, your chase versus Batman, you know, butting heads. Um, the, the lighting that uses heavy, heavy blacks. And I think this is really mm. Mitch Gray coming in with the yep. inking. But just laying on these heavy blacks, which, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, one of the greatest folks that has uh, done this is Mike Mignola. And there's definitely that feel of noir in so many of the scenes um, that are being portrayed here. Like you're looking at people in an office setting and what you get are the shade of the blinds, you know, basically crossing, uh, crossing their figures. Right. So, you know, there it's heavily influenced by, um, you know, this very realistic and gritty, uh, gritty setting, um, really one brings it down to earth, you know, like you talked about. How does she navigate her personal life? This is really street-level stuff. Um, a little bit of super agent, right? But mm -hmm. Because she, she tends to come off as being uh, extremely competent. Um, but again, lots and lots of um, blacks, um, moody colors, dark colors. Um, you know, when they're when you're looking at it at Gotham, you've got these really industrial streets. Um, you know, old broken bridges, and then you know it, you could miss it. But then there's the silhouette of the Batman against the night sky, and it's just it's just so evocative. And this is another one of those great pairings of art and story. The pacing, the way the pages are laid out. You know, it's not six panels per page, four panels per page, eight panels per page. It's, you know, chaotic at times. And uh, if there's a lot of action, then, you know, the, the panels, you know, are at an angle or, you know, they overlap each other like Polaroids. Uh, it's, it's really a great, great 
great rendition here. Yeah, JJ, I almost equated it, frankly, to almost a stained glass effect. Mm-hmm. Honestly, just just in the layouts, mind you. Okay, uh, because the the renderings are quite are quite crisp. So for our, our listeners, I don't want them to get the impression that okay, all of a sudden we're taking Hellboy uh art styling and and that's what this is no the shadowing is very reminiscent of it the Mm -hmm. the gilding like you said is reminiscent of it but this shadowing of the bat story arc itself just sets a whole other tone to this series that you know tells you as a reader this is pretty important you better pay attention because this is going to get interesting really fast, particularly the the more that Cameron Chase gets to know Batman, I feel, not only through the portrayal and the art, but, but through the dialogue back and forth, that she starts to understand him and actually like him in some instances. Mm-hmm. That they are almost kindred spirits, although they're serving different uh, agendas. Because very clearly, Batman has his own, and and Cameron's there, like you said, almost like a double agent to say, "Okay, look, Batman, I, I we're we're both after the same thing. Let me work with you." But also knowing that she has that agenda to find out who in the world is this Batman, and and if we need to uh, put a um, a, a kibosh here on his activity. Uh, we want to know as many strings that we have to pull as possible. And, you know, that, that makes for a, a conflicted Cameron here at, at times as far as, Hmm, do, do, do I really want to do that? Or do I want to keep the Batman in service to this bigger thing that we're both trying to solve or pursue? Mm-hmm. And I love that. You you are absolutely right. That dance is exquisite and wonderfully captured here in the artwork. I can't say enough for what uh, Jim Williams did here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and again, I think we're giving proper due, and you know we most likely should have um, profiled him too in our. Um, in our creative chatter, uh, Mick Gray, yes, his contributions here cannot be undersold or or be underestimated. His his presence is uh, just so so important. Yes, yes, and to contrast that, J. H. Williams III takes the look and feel of the story and makes it specific to that story. So we talked about this kind of, you know, art deco style in this two-part, you know, shadowing the bat storyline. Earlier, there's a two-part story, and this is the one where she's, you know, leading the suicide squad. There's a um, intelligent virus or a self-aware virus that is awakening um, in a South American country. And all of the stylings of those pages, the borders have 
uh, the trace work like you would see on a motherboard. Um, yes. And it again, it reinforces the the theme, the 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 story. It reinforces what they're dealing with and really sets a tone. And this is the same artist who, you know, will later be doing these dark ominous um you know, film noir style uh, versus this kind of uh, suspenseful, almost alien-esque, um, and I'm talking about like the original Alien movie where it's that dark, creepy, you know, like what is this thing that we're, that we're dealing with here? Um, and just does a wonderful job. And the covers are so, they grab your attention every time. They're, they're graphic, they're interesting, they're dynamic. It's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. And, and JJ, the, the thing that I love about the paneling here is the freeform nature of it, but all servicing the story. I, one of the best full-page illustrations is of Cameron there leading the Suicide Squad. And her hand is reaching out through what appears to be uh, some sort of, of ring as she is falling off a cliff down into a river. Mm -hmm. And it is breathtaking. It is such a powerful illustration here in sharing her absolute sheer terror and the fact that oh my gosh, I'm 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 heading down this descent off a cliff into a river, and meanwhile I've been separated from the Suicide Squad up there, who we all know their number one thing they want is their own freedom. <laughs> exactly. And, and, exactly. And Cameron saying, you know what? I can't I I can't trust these metahumans. Oh my gosh! If I lose sight of them. Will they flee or will he come back and kill me? You just don't know. But boy, he really captures just the sheer terror in her face as she's falling and then also realizing, uh-oh, I've lost all control. Yes. Well, and another thing about that series, and you talked about she's in this, she's framed in this ring. And yes. the ring is a repeating motif because this this virus, you know, sentient virus thing that's awakening, you know, has a, like a camera eye. So, you know, you're getting the sense that you're kind of seeing this through this creature's eye, you know, where they're almost omniscient and can see things everywhere. So again, it just it reinforces the, the theme that is, a great strength in the story. So it'd be curious to see, and I know we've kind of peeked behind the scenes and seen how the sausage is made, but it would be interesting to see how Johnson and Williams work this out. Was this a case of Johnson, like Alan Moore and other writers, had a very particular vision that they were trying to achieve, or was there sort of this symbiotic relationship, um, you know, much like Mignola and some of the artists that he works with, where he can just say, okay, eight pages of fight scene, go. 
right <laughs> what what was it between these two these these two artists and and, and creators yeah i that i would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that one for sure because it, it they they are really working in harmony here and it is amazing how powerfully these illustrations work on multiple levels as you've just pointed out here from the circles to then head over to the batman one all of that that gilding and the the edge work there and the shadowing and yeah it, it's it, it's pretty amazing it, it is the attention to detail with the thought involved mm -hmm. to convey these story ideas and and hammer home where this story is trying to take you it is really 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 great i i i can't can't say enough positive things about chase in just this sadly 10 issue yep. series yep well it was a good read absolutely i am dungeon master absolutely so jj when you were reading uh chase uh, did anything come to mind with regard to uh, role-playing game inspiration where maybe this this facet of the DC universe could reside and maybe thrive around a tabletop role-playing game table? Absolutely. And, and I'll share really quick one of my uh, one of my role-playing experiences. I, I had a friend. Uh, who ran a game of DC Heroes for us, and I'll talk about DC Heroes in just a moment. But in that game, we were members of the new newest iteration of the Suicide Squad. So instead of us taking characters from the books, everybody created their their own new characters and a backstory for why uh, you know why we were you know, part of the suicide squad. And it was, just, it was a lot of fun. Let me tell you, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because we got to go up against Aquaman and like Aquaman wiped the floor with us. It was great. And there's, there's never been such a time where losing was so much fun, but uh, there's been a, a great history of DC related role-playing games and the first of those was DC Heroes. It's uh, out of print. It was a superhero role-playing game set in the DC universe and published by Mayfair, Mayfair Games. And that came out uh, three editions in print. Now, as part of that, the as part of the DC Heroes line, they released a standalone role-playing game called the Batman role-playing game um, in... Uh, 1990 or 1989 and now it only focused on Batman and Gotham so it was very much you could exclude all the really high-end superpowers and it was meant to be much more of a street level game so this DC Heroes line was noteworthy because of what was called uh, the Mayfair Exponential System. Um, no, it Mayfair Exponential something. I can't remember what the third character was, but it, it was called Megs for short, M-E-G. Um, and what it did was 
how do you represent it? It tried to solve the problem. How do you represent a game in which you can have both Robin, the boy wonder and Superman acting in the same scene? How do you, how do you handle that, that, you know, range of power? And essentially what they did is they created a scale that was exponential in value, meaning each value was twice the value as it was before. So two was twice as powerful as one, three was twice as powerful as two, and so on. So you could have a Superman who would say have a strength of 25 and a Robin who would say have a strength of two or three, and you, they can both operate in the same in the same session. Uh, and there was lots of things that you could do to you know, move up or down the scale. Um, the drawback to this system is you had to think kind of abstractly and you had to translate everything into um, uh, basically attribute points. So when you had to think of the weight of something, you had to translate that weight into a number. So if 50 pounds was a one, you know that a character with two can easily lift AP units of one, right? So, or something that was a one. And so if we know that, um, if we know that a, a 50 pound bag of something is, is rated as a one and two is twice as much as one, we know two is a hundred pounds and three is 200 pounds and so forth. And, you know, by the time you get up to 15, you're talking about a tank. And by the time you get up to 25, you're talking about a, um, a, you know, either a mountain or a um, steamship, right? So it really did a good job of trying to make everything concrete. So no matter what you ran across, you could deal with it. And it was a fun game. It was a really fun game. Once you got over the the abstractions of things it was really fun and it was a contemporary and competitor of the original marvel superheroes game which i think you have a little bit of experience with yeah i do as a matter of fact i absolutely love running that game gming uh, marvel superheroes and, and jj if i was hearing you correctly uh, meg's here this mayfair exponential game system yep essentially is using a logarithmic scale Yes. Uh, so, so not unlike, I mean, holy mackerel, I'm really going to go back here. Uh, not unlike what my grandfather maybe used in his double E uh, courses in college and utilizing a slide rule exactly. to figure things out here. So, you know, this is very interesting that they, that they would choose to do this. But frankly, I, I, I get it. I, I get it from a... Uh, a power standpoint, sizing up standpoint, attribute standpoint, uh, measuring of abilities, it it, it works. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd find it long-term tremendously enjoyable, right? but it's a fair system once you understand or are applying that system to all player characters across the board, as well as potential adversaries. Yep. And so one... so. There were a number of things that I really liked about this system. First off, there were nine statistics, and the nine statistics uh, 
essentially where you're physical, you're mental, and you're, you know, quote-unquote spiritual. And, you know, if you think of those as your rows, then you have three columns, which was essentially your attack, your defense, and your hit points in those three areas. And um, the system was incredibly elegant. Um, and there were tools that helped you figure things out. And one of those was a... Um, like you would punch this out of, of cardboard and you uh, you put it together and it's a little wheel, right? And you would dial the wheel to say, okay, these are the opposing values. What's needed to what's needed to succeed in this, right? And so uh, it was it was pretty snazzy and like I said, it made for uh, pretty fast and fantastic um, play. Um, and I actually remembered. My first encounter, what sold me on this, was I went to a demo at a convention in Cleveland commemorating uh, Schuster and Siegel. Um, it might have been the 50th anniversary of Superman uh, that they were celebrating in Cleveland, and there happened to be somebody doing a demo of uh, one of the early um, releases of uh, the DC Heroes line. It was, it was just a lot of fun. Um, now, this line, once it finally ended, was followed up by the DC Universe role-playing game, which is a legend system-based role-playing game, again, set in the DC Universe, but this was published by West End Games. Now, I remember this one coming out, and this one was really flashy, and it, it had a lot of great art, and that's one of the great things about role-playing games when you've got an IP that is based on comic books, they have such a, a wealth of, of artwork that you can use to make your role-playing game look really uh, snazzy. Now, I didn't get into this version because, frankly, I still had my DC Heroes, so <laughs> I didn't need to. Uh, but the latest version, or the last version, I should say, that I'm aware of, is DC Adventures, uh, which was published by Green Ronin in 2010. Uh, now, what was interesting about this is this is essentially taking Green Ronin's third edition of Mutants and Mastermind and then putting that engine to the DC universe. And um, having played Mutants and Mastermind, which was kind of, it, it, it grew out of that... Um, D20 explosion uh, from the OGL where everybody started creating derivative products on um, the three stats and so forth. It really is a great system. Uh, it is a great system and uh, very fun to play. And you can actually still find copies of this one on Amazon, but expect to pay a pretty penny. I was seeing them going for over 50 bucks. So, wow. The, now, the advantage of this, the advantage of using one of these games versus something else is generally you're going to be able to find statistics already generated for your favorite heroes and villains, right? So if you're Chase and you want to come up against the Batman, there's probably a source book or at least, you know, a character reference so that you can figure out what the Batman can and can't do. The same for Deadshot or the Huntress or any of the, the people that we saw on the cover of the first issue. Um, the, the DC Heroes game was incredibly well supported. 
um, and detailed all areas of the DC universe of the time of its publishing. Now, if you were to do this, say, in Marvel superheroes, even though that game is no longer in print, I know that their website, they were there. There's such a community around it that still loves that that particular game. And um, there are people, and this is probably true of most of the other game uh, heroes game systems like Champions, um, where people have statted out various characters in that particular system. So I don't doubt that you could find the Batman statted as a Marvel superhero character um, with fighting, agility, uh, so on and so forth, uh, as opposed to the way they're described in DC Heroes. Wow. I mean, JJ, you've really given us a lot to to contemplate here in being able to take what we experienced here in the comics and and almost bring Chase back to life. (laughs) And I I really, really love uh, your your reflections here on both DC Heroes and also the uh, West End Games uh, system and, and, um, you know, that the Mayfair Games you know, Meg's system is also uh, tremendous. And again, um, you know, having a fan base that already has statted up both your heroes and villains it, it is is critical here towards expediting uh, your enjoyment around the table. And uh, from that standpoint, th- these all sound like that they were back in the day properly. Uh, supported, and that there were indeed uh, uh, good fan bases uh, that were uh, there growing uh, the game, which is what you want to see, ultimately. So with that, JJ, how would you wrap up here our Chase reading experience, and who do you feel Chase is geared towards from a readership standpoint? So the Chase series, I think, will appeal to anybody who appreciates um, the slow discovery of information. So you're learning about the character and you're learning about the universe that they're in and their backstory, you know, as it's brought out on um, a little bit of a trickle, right? You're going to get it uh, at that pace. But the core of the book is still um, action, investigation, thriller, uh, detective work, and really anybody who appreciates um, those sorts of stories, definitely from an age-wise, you know, this would be teen and up. Um, there's uh, there's some, you know, some... F- there are demons, there are, there's obviously a lot of violence in this, but it's done in such a way that it's not gratuitous. Um, I think it would be, you know, very much like, um, oh, I'm watching Alias now, and that level of excitement that happens when you're on a mission, and that tension that you get when you're trying to figure something out. So, uh, 
yeah, I would definitely give this to you. If you like X-Files, you, you pr probably enjoy this as well. It's not going to be like your A-list superheroes. Really, you're going to be on the fringes of the DC universe. But I think it's exploring such a wonderful place here that um, I think most folks will be able to find something that they like. Yeah, and JJ, I think you very well teed it up as far as fringes of the DC universe because you do get the occasional visit by a luminary such as Batman, but you're you're not going to get the A-listers here. But what you do get is a very messy, complex world that Karen Chase has to navigate through, and from that standpoint. I, I don't think you could ask for a better environment to really draw you in as a reader. And there, there, if there's one thing that can be said about this series, it is not dull. It is not boring. You are never put in a position where uh, you feel the story isn't advancing. So when JJ is referring to a slow burn as far as reveal is concerned, I think it's done in such a good way that it just adds tension, almost a thriller element to it as to, okay, when's the next shoe going to drop? When are we going to get that next little nugget or insight into what Cameron Chase is as a person? What makes her tick? Why is she the way she is? And genuinely caring about her by getting to understand better her everyday life her everyday struggles the uh, all of the different things that she's balancing between her personal life and her professional life and then of course those pesky metahumans who always seem to stir things up in the most inconvenient time in her life and completely throws her life then into chaos as her boyfriend who is pretty happy just being a being a programmer and and and, and hanging back, um, you know, lives with uh, the lifestyle that she has chosen for herself, which is pretty fast and furious based on the missions that she sent in and where she is having to go uh, to the next hotspot to intervene. So it, it's it's really really good, uh, amazing writing and visual storytelling i wholeheartedly concur and we're kids. Hey, shout,